Well, good morning. It's good to be with everyone here at Gospel of Grace. Thank you for that lovely worship. If you can't preach after that send-off, there's something wrong with you. Thank you. That was very good. Well, today, I'm going to get my PowerPoint going here. As we witness Jesus undergoing testing in the wilderness, I think we can run the risk in thinking that this passage we're about to learn is simply about Jesus being a role model and that you and I can simply go into the wilderness and do what he did. Now, certainly we can and we will glean ways from Jesus in which you and I can thwart the schemes of the evil one. But today we have to know that this passage was crafted by Matthew, who wants us to see that Jesus is the faithful son who went into the wilderness for 40 years to be our substitute, that he would be perfect in obedience. And that's because, remember, Israel, they went into the wilderness for 40 years but they failed. Jesus goes to the wilderness for 40 days. He succeeds. He's the faithful son. And you and I are going to learn today that because of his faithfulness, you and I can have atonement and we can have righteousness by vicariously belonging to Jesus through faith. He did all of this for us. Now, I want to begin actually with an outline today and show you how these 11 verses play out. I want to begin with verse 1 and show you that this whole temptation of Jesus is ultimately a testing by God. Now, certainly Satan is doing the tempting, but God is the one who is orchestrating it. And he is using this temptation as a test to show the faithfulness of his son. So I want you to think, do you remember in Genesis chapter 50? Do you remember when you had Joseph brothers, they had sold him into slavery Do you remember what Joseph said in Genesis 50? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Satan means the temptation for evil, but God means the temptation of the son for our good because he will succeed and therefore he can bear our iniquities. Now, I want you to see that in Matthew 4, verses 2 through 4, I kind of shortened in a little summary what the temptation is about Scripture or stomach? What I mean by that is we are confronted with the question, will Jesus live by Scripture or his stomach? Israel failed in this regard. They demanded food or they wouldn't serve God. They lived by their stomach rather than Scripture. But Jesus does the opposite. Why? Because he's the faithful son. He's the faithful son Israel never was. And by the way, I'm not poo-pooing Israel. We wouldn't have fared any better as Gentiles. That's the point. If the the Israelites couldn't do it, we certainly couldn't. So we're no better than they. Now, notice the next temptation. There's three of them. The second one, I like to succinctly called trust or test. And that's where we are confronted with the question, will Jesus trust the Father or will he put the Heavenly Father to a test like Israel did? Israel tested God by saying, either you do this miracle for us, God, you give us this kind of water, this kind of food at our timing, or we're going back to Egypt. That's what they did. Will Jesus do the same? No, he will succeed. He will trust rather than test because he's the faithful son. Notice the third temptation that we have here, in some sense, is a summary of all of Christ's temptations, and that is shortcut or suffering Will Jesus take his kingdom early by a shortcut? Or will, be he, will he be willing to go through the suffering as our suffering servant and grab the kingdom only after agony? 
Now, dear ones, by the way, this type of question, will he take the shortcut or the suffering, that's going to be a temptation all the way through Jesus' ministry. In fact, when we get to Matthew chapter 16, remember there, Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. Remember right after that, Jesus says he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and to suffer. And then do you remember what Peter said? May it never be. Peter could not conceive of an idea that his Messiah would in fact suffer. Do you remember what Jesus said to the doctrine, the teaching that he should not suffer? He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The idea that the Messiah should not suffer is a satanic doctrine. Because if he doesn't suffer, he won't bear our iniquities. You and I are lost in our sins, and we're going to go to perdition. But thanks be to God today, we see in the wilderness, even in the wilderness, Jesus was the faithful son. Finally, we get to verse 11, and we see Jesus is going to be rested by God. Let me pull up my pointer. I want you to see something. Here, Jesus is being tested by God. God uses an angel, albeit a fallen one, Satan, to test the son. Down here in verse 11, he uses the good angels to rest the son. But God the Father is sovereign over the angels, and he uses even the angels for our good. Okay, now let's get started here in the first three verses. We are confronted with the question, what is Christ's priority? Remember, Israel's priority in the wilderness was to feed their stomach. They lived by stomach rather than by Scripture. And we're going to see that Jesus here is confronted with the same temptation. Verses 1 through 3, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Brothers and sisters, the first thing I want you to see in this text, I want you to look at the term then. Then there is actually very important in the Greek because it ties us back to the last clause of Matthew chapter 3, which was what? It was the baptism of Jesus. And it was the last clause in Matthew chapter 3 was where the father said of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And remember, God had another faithful son in history, according to Exodus 4.22. That was Israel. Do you remember Israel had a form of baptism? They went through the Red Sea. After they were baptized through the Red Sea, they went where? Into the wilderness for 40 years, and they failed. Jesus is being linked to his baptism as the faithful son who now goes to the wilderness for 40 days, and he will succeed. Again, Jesus is the faithful son. Notice in blue, he was led up by the Spirit. Very important that we see that because we know now that Jesus' arrival in the wilderness is not by happenstance, but it was orchestrated by God. Again, God is demonstrating that his son is in fact faithful. I want you to see that although he's led by the Spirit, it was into the wilderness, but notice here it says, to be tempted by the devil. That's an infinitive clause, probably purpose. The purpose of being led into the Spirit was in order to be tempted by the devil. Now, as we look at that phrase, tempted by the devil, I want you to think of it this way. I think the devil is the means by which Jesus is tempted. So think of the Heavenly Father as the architect who is orchestrating it, 
But Satan is the instrumental means by which Jesus is tempted. Now, why is that important to distinguish? God is the architect. Satan is the means. Well, because in passages like James 1.13, we learn that God doesn't tempt anyone with evil, nor can he be tempted by evil. Remember James 1.13, James says, Let no one say when they're being tempted that they're being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. So certainly God's hands are pure. Satan is doing the tempting, but God is orchestrating it. He's the architect. Why? Because he is putting the son to a test, a test that he will, in fact, succeed in. Now, the next thing I want you to see is notice in verse 2, it's very interesting. It says that after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Notice that underlying phrase is very important for two reasons. Number one, it shows us that indeed this temptation would have been very strong. It's easy to say no to food after you've had your fill. I could say no to getting bread if I just went through a all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet or I got my whole pan of deep dish pizza. Yeah, I could say no. But to go 40 days and say no to food, I can't go four hours. I'd fail miserably. But Jesus goes 40 days, and yet he is successful. Now, more importantly, though, Jesus is being depicted here by being 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, I think, as the new Israel. Now, to be fair, Jot these down if you're a note-taker. Exodus 24 and 1 Kings chapter 19, both Moses and Elijah, the prophets of God, they were on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And so that certainly is true about Jesus. He is the prophet par excellence. But remember, Matthew is crafting all of this to show us that Jesus is the faithful son Israel never was. He is. Jesus is the one who succeeds in the wilderness where they had failed. Now, when we get to verse 3, I want you to notice the description here of Satan. Notice he's called the tempter. It's actually a participle, a participle form of perazzo. In fact, Satan is called three different things in the text we're looking at. He's called the devil, diablos. He's called the tempter, and he's called Satan. And again, Satan is being used by God, and God is going to test the son. Now, notice what the tempter says. He says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. There's two reasons why this temptation has some merit to it or some bite. The first reason why this temptation has some bite to it is it is indeed outrageous that the son of God should suffer. Isn't it outrageous that the son of God, who's done nothing wrong, who owns everything, who created all things, that he should suffer by being hungry? Satan has a point there. It is outrageous. The second point that is equally true is Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, he can do something about it. The one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, he can create food ex nihilo out of nothing. And so he can remedy this problem. But of course, if he does... He's not the suffering servant on our behalf. He's acquiescing to his stomach like the unfaithful son Israel did in the wilderness long ago. And so Israel failed because they lived for their stomach. 
rather than the testing that God had put them through by his word. And the question is, will Jesus do the same? Will he live by the scripture or by the stomach? Didn't Isaiah 53, wasn't it written that he'd be the suffering servant? Is he going to live up to that? Or is he going to say, no, I'm going to feed myself here and now. I've had enough of this. That's the issue that's at stake. He's either going to be the suffering servant for us, or he's going to live for his desires and feelings. Now, I want you to take a note of this phrase here that's used where the tempter says, if you are the son of God, he's going to use that again of the next temptation. But I want you to realize that that phrase, if you are the son of God, in some sense brackets Jesus' earthly ministry. Think of it this way. Here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in a sense, in the wilderness, you have Satan saying, if you're the son of God, why don't you stop suffering? That's what he's tempting him to do. But all the way back at the end of Jesus' ministry, while he's on the cross in Matthew 27, 40, there's going to be an unbeliever at the foot of the cross who says, if you are the son of God, why don't you come down off the cross? And who ultimately is behind that temptation? Satan is. So at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the temptation is, if you're the son of God, why are you suffering? At the very end of his ministry on the cross, if you're the son of God, why are you suffering? And all the way through, Jesus has to fight to suffer rather than to take the divine prerogative and take the kingdom early. Brothers and sisters, praise be to God. Jesus is the faithful son. Now, here we see that Jesus' response clarifies what's at stake. Israel lived by stomach. He lives by scripture. Matthew 4, 4, it says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I want you to notice here that Jesus uses scripture for his defense. He uses the scripture. The the scriptures are Jesus' authority rather than his feelings or his stomach. I also want you to see here in all caps, this is Deuteronomy 8.3. Please turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. I want you to see it in the original context. And I want you to see it in the original context because I want you to see that this passage, very simply, originally applied to Israel. And I want you to see now Jesus is the faithful son, the new Israel, that they were not. Deuteronomy 8.3. Notice here Moses is describing how God and why God used this temptation in the wilderness. He used it to humble Israel, to put them to a test. Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses says, He, that's God, humbled you, that's Israel, and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Dear ones, that's what Jesus fundamentally understood, that we don't live by bread alone. Do you realize that every breath we take is ordained and sustained by God? You see, God's not just the creator of the universe. He's also the sustainer. And this is why the apostle Paul could say, in him we live, we move, and we have our being. Every breath that we have is something gifted by God, by his sustaining power. 
And so Jesus fundamentally understood this. And what's interesting is Jesus uses then Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8 that originally applied to Israel. Why? Because we see then from that that Jesus had the priorities that Israel didn't. They lived for their stomach. Jesus lived by Scripture. That's the big distinction between the two sons. Okay, now let's continue here to the second the second testing here, and that is we see Jesus confronted with either trusting or testing God. Matthew 4, verses 5 through 6, it says, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, notice that's used a second time now, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And one thing I want to point out here is it says the devil took Jesus to the holy city, to the pinnacle of the temple. Does everyone see that? Here's something we have to think about. Isn't Jesus still in the wilderness? Is he traveling bodily or is he traveling spiritually like in a vision? Well, we're not told. But something I want you to think about is you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when the apostle Paul said that he had gone and seen I believe it's the new Jerusalem, but he calls it the third heaven. The apostle Paul said, whether it was in the body or out of the body, he says, I do not know. That's really the condition we are in here. We don't know whether Jesus was in the body or out of the body. I say that because in the next temptation, Jesus is going to be brought up on a high mountain where he can see all the kingdoms of the world. And technically speaking, there is no such place. What high mountain is there that you can see all of the world? You can't. So more than likely, this is happening spiritually. It is a real temptation while Jesus is still in the wilderness. Something to think about. Now, notice here, where is Jesus? He's at the pinnacle of the temple. More than likely, the temple here is a reference to the wider structure, not just the inner sanctuary. And the point is, he's somewhere high, and the devil tempts him by saying, if you're the son of God, why don't you throw yourself down? And then what the devil does is he cites Psalm 91, 11 through 12, which is all about how God cares for his own and will sustain and protect his own. Now, some scholars have thought that, well, the problem with Satan's citation of Psalm 91 here is that he doesn't quite cite it accurately. He leaves out a little bit of it. Well, more than likely, I don't think that that's the issue. Why? Because he cites enough of it that it's accurately rendered. The issue isn't the citation by Satan, it's the misapplication. Satan is deliberately misapplying Psalm 91 to force Jesus to put God to a test. Now, what does it mean to put God to a test? What it means is where you and I as humans demand that God jump through our hoops and perform a miracle, otherwise we're not following him. That's what Israel did in the wilderness. Lord, you give us this kind of food, not that kind of food. You give us this drink now, and if you don't do it, we're going back to Egypt. That's putting the Lord God to a test. God, you jump through our hoops, and you do the miracle. We're not happy with your provision and your protection the way you've done it. In fact, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 17. Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 17. The reason I want you to turn there 
is this is a great passage that really shows what testing is, what it means to test the Lord. And ironically, this is a testing upon Jesus by the unbelieving Israelites. Remember, Jesus is God. So as you're turning to Matthew eleven sixteen through 17, I want you to turn here because if anyone ever asks you, what does it mean to test God? This is your passage. Jesus describes what it looks like. Now, let me set the stage. As you're turning to Matthew eleven sixteen through 17, remember here the Israelites would not accept John the Baptist and they wouldn't accept Jesus. Now, why is that testing? Because they said, hey, John the Baptist, we don't like him because he's austere. He lives an austere lifestyle. And we don't like Jesus because he dines with sinners and he eats and drinks as a wine bibbler. So they won't accept John who's austere and they won't accept Jesus who dines with sinners. They don't like anyone that God sent. And so Jesus says it this way. He says, verse 16, Matthew 11, but to what shall I compare this generation? Stop there for just a moment. This generation is used not for a time period, but it's used as a pejorative. This generation is a group of people characterized by unbelief whether from the beginning of time or until now, all people who are unbelievers are part of this generation. Bob DeWay wrote a great article where he proves that biblically. And so if you put in critical issues commentary in the search engine, this generation, it'll come up. Bob did a wonderful job, and he'll show you that. So that's what it has to do. This generation is about the unbeliever. So Jesus goes on, he says, this generation is like this. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to the other children, and say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. It's like children saying to God, hey, we played the flute, and you didn't do what we said. Wasn't that what Israel was doing in the wilderness? Lord, we don't like this kind of food. We want this kind of food. You have to perform this miracle, or we're out of here. And think about this. Don't glaze over. Think of the irony. Why is Israel... In the first place, in the wilderness, because God is putting them to a test. But isn't it great arrogance and chutzpah? And by the way, the Israelites aren't any worse than we. We do the same thing. The chutzpah of humanity is that they put God to the test. They try to reverse it on God. God is using the wilderness to test them. They say, oh, no, no, we're going to put you to a test. That's the sad irony. And so the question is, will Jesus do the same? Will he trust the Father? Or test the Father. And praise be to God, we see that He's the faithful Son that Israel never was. He trusts the Father, accepts the provision and the protection on God's terms. He's the faithful Son Israel never was. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 4 7, Jesus said to them, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I want you to notice this phrase where Jesus says, oops, I got to pull up my pointer again. He says, on the other hand. That's Jesus' way of saying to Satan, hey, nice try with the scripture, but wrong application. Anytime someone has a misapplication of scripture, it will be shown oftentimes by other scripture that contradicts it. So Jesus is emulating good hermeneutics here for us. You and I can say, hey, that's a misapplication because if you apply that passage, it violates this passage. That's sound reasoning. Notice what Jesus cites. He cites Deuteronomy 6.16. 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, originally, again, that was about Israel. Israel tested God in the wilderness. In fact, I want you to see the passage where Moses cites their temptation and testing of God. It's in Exodus 17 too. Now, remember the context, they're thirsty. They're in the wilderness, but they're not content with God's provision. It says in Exodus 17 too, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Something interesting to note here, notice to quarrel with Moses is in some sense synonymous with testing the Lord. To quarrel with Moses, who is the very spokesman for God, it's to test God. They weren't happy, the Israelites, with God's provision. And so later, if you fast forward, you don't have to turn to it now, but in Exodus 17, 7, this place is called Massah, the place of testing. It's also called Meribah, the place of quarreling or the complaint. And so forevermore, Israel was remembered as those who put God to the test. They said, God, you have to jump through our hoops, give us water when we want it, give us food for our stomach the way we want it, when we want it, or we want to go back to Egypt. We won't trust you. Jesus, the faithful son, says, no, I'm content. I'm going to trust the father and not put the father to a test. He's the faithful son that Israel never was. Now, we come to our final temptation here, and that is shortcut or suffering. And in some sense, this temptation wraps up all of the temptations. Is Jesus going to take the kingdom by shortcut? Without the suffering, he can do it. He has the prerogative. He's the son of God. Or is he going to go through the suffering so that he can bear our sins? Notice it says in verses 8 through 9, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, again, brothers and sisters, technically, there is no high mountain in the world that you can look down and see all of the other kingdoms. And so, again, this is a vision, I think, that Jesus is having while what? While he's in the wilderness. He's still in the wilderness. Again, the Apostle Paul himself said he went to the New Jerusalem, the third heaven, and he didn't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. And I think we're left wondering, in a sense, the same thing. But notice the nature of the temptation The nature of the temptation that you see in red is this. If Jesus takes his kingdom without suffering, he's bowing his knee to the lordship of Satan. If Jesus abides by what was written about him in the scriptures and lives by the will of God and bows his knee to the Father, he's going to suffer. And so which will it be? And praise be to God, we know the answer. Jesus does take the suffering rather than the shortcut. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this is a temptation that will go all the way through Jesus' earthly ministry. Again, let me bring you back, or will actually be forward, to Matthew chapter 16. At Caesarea Philippi, the apostle Peter, do you know that he was the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ? Remember, Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. And Jesus looked at them probably piercingly and said, well, who do you say that I am? 
And the boisterous Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this is not revealed to you by flesh, but my father in heaven. And right after that, Jesus says he's going to go up to Jerusalem to suffer. What does Peter say to that? He cannot conceive in his theology a suffering Messiah. Only a Messiah that kicks the Romans out and brings the kingdom now. And so Peter says, may it never be. What's Jesus' response that there's no suffering? We get the kingdom by the shortcut. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It is a satanic doctrine, a satanic scheme that the Messiah should not suffer. Because if he doesn't suffer, you and I are going to be left in our sins and we're on the way to perdition. That's the idea. Now, the same temptation comes to Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to remember that the first representative of all of humanity was Adam. Adam was in a garden of perfection. He was in the Garden of Eden. He walked with God, and there was only one stipulation as he lived in that garden that he could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. And he thought that that was unwarranted. And so Adam, in the Garden of Perfection, said, not your will be done, Lord, my will be done. Jesus, fast forward to Matthew 26, he's not in a garden of perfection. He's in the garden of Gethsemane, the garden of the olive press. The image is he's being pressed upon by the weight of our sin. He knows the cross is coming. But you know, in Matthew 26, 42, Jesus in that garden says, not my will, but thine be done. I'm not taking the shortcut. I'm taking the suffering. The final time this happens at one of these pivotal moments again is on the cross. Jesus is being tortured on a cross, the most brutal way that any person could die. And someone says to him from the crowd, if you are the son of God, just like Satan did, come down off that cross. Don't take all this suffering. Take the kingdom now. Why don't you do that if you're the son of God? But Jesus doesn't take the shortcut. He took the suffering. All so that you and I could have a suffering servant and be saved vicariously through him. And so listen to what Jesus responds by saying. It says, then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. First thing I want you to see here is notice Jesus' command. This is an imperative of hupago. You could literally render this, go away. Go away, Satan. Isn't it interesting that here, this is a sure indicator that Jesus is God. Why? Well, don't turn to it, but just jot down Jude 1.9. Remember, there's only one chapter in Jude. In verse 9 of Jude, Jude makes the poignant remark that when Michael the archangel was disputing over the body of Moses with Satan, remember, Michael the archangel, he said, did not make a railing judgment, but said, may the Lord rebuke you. And from that, Bob and I have often said, hey, this shows us that humanity does not have the right to boss the angels around. How many times do you hear a prayer walk where people are going to go bind Satan? I'm going to make the demons do this and the demons do that. Well, Michael the archangel wouldn't do it. Why? Because he didn't have the authority. 
If Michael the archangel doesn't have the authority, how much less you and I? Mere mortals, this side of glory. Certainly we don't have the authority. Who has the authority? God alone. Jesus says, go away, Satan. Imperative command in the Greek. Why can he do that? Because he is God. And notice, isn't it interesting? The devil obeys, he left him. Yes, Jesus is not only truly man, the the perfect son, but he's truly God who uses the angels and the demons as he sees fit. Now, the passage that is cited here is Deuteronomy 6.13. And again, what we have to see in this text is that if Jesus were to take the shortcut, the kingdom by the shortcut, he would be bowing his knee to Satan, making, in effect, Satan Lord. But if Jesus takes upon the suffering the will of the Father, he's acquiescing and he's bowing to his Father in serving him as Lord. It's one or the other. And in our applications today, I'm going to show you that in a sense, that's what we have in our daily choices. Are we going to live for Scripture or for our own desires? Are we going to take the shortcut? Or are we going to live for the suffering that entails those who live for the kingdom? All right, now, I want you to see here that it says the devil left him, and then it says angels came and began to minister to him. Isn't it interesting in verse 1, God is sovereign. God uses a wicked angel, Satan, to test the son. Now God the Father uses the good angels to rest the son. But God is the one who is sovereign over this whole event, showing us that in the wilderness, Jesus is the faithful son. And he does all of this for us. Okay, now let's come to some applications. I have two of them for you here this morning. Number one, we're going to ask ourselves the question in our daily lives, will we live by scripture or by our desires? Okay, now again, I'm not claiming that Matthew 4, 1 through 11 is about Jesus being a role model so that you and I can go into the wilderness and duke it out with Satan ourselves. No, you and I are not called to the wilderness. Interestingly enough, we're called to the assembly. Do you know that? How many times in church history have mystics and monks brought people to the wilderness where they fail? Why? Because they bring themselves with. Do you know that you and I have a sin nature? If I go to the wilderness, I'll fail. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. He was the Holy One of Israel. He didn't fail. No, this is not about us going to the wilderness, but you and I can glean some things from how Jesus lived for Scripture rather than his own desire. That's what we'll be looking at. Number two. Most importantly, we're going to learn that Christ, again, is the faithful son. Adam and Israel were not in order that he could be our new representative. And we're going to talk about how the core of the gospel is that you and I are saved vicariously through the person in the work of Jesus. Okay, so let's begin with this first application. That is, we're going to ask the question, how do we live by Scripture rather than our own sinful desires in our daily walk? And the first thing I think we have to affirm is that according to the scriptures, we can only do that by God's power. Do you remember in Romans 8, 8, Paul says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God? What does it mean to be in the flesh? It means to be without the spirit. There's two spheres. You're either in the spirit, a believer, or you're in the flesh. And if you're in the flesh, you're without the spirit. You can't please God by believing or obeying. 
So we can only please God by having the Spirit who enables us to believe and to obey. All right, now, the question for us in our daily lives, are we going to live for our sinful desires, therefore we're living for this world, or are we going to live by Scripture and live for the king and his kingdom? I want to share with you a passage that I think succinctly shows us it's either or. And that's found in 1 John 2.15. And I'll put up verses 16 and 17 here in a moment. But notice what John says here. Listen to this. 1 John 2.15. John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, notice he says, Do not love the world. Let's define what he means by world. You know, world is used three different ways in the New Testament. Bob gave a great message once when he explained this to us. The first usage of world in the New Testament is sometimes it just refers to the created order in its entirety. Nothing sinful inherently with the created order. It's just about the creation. The rocks, the trees, the the moon, the stars, etc. It's the world. Second usage has to do with the arena of human affairs. That you and I are in the world. Okay? Nothing inherently sinful about the arena of human affairs. The third usage of the world is its humanity in its moral opposition and rebellion against God. And it's that third usage, certainly, that John is using here in 1 John 2.15. That, yes, if you love the rebellion and your evil desires, then you are not a lover of God. You're either going to love God or you're going to love sin. That's the idea. Now, notice he says then, 1 John 2, 16 through 17, for all that is in the world, again, in its rebellion against God, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, again, in rebellion against God. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, let me pick this passage apart a little bit. Notice, first of all, there's three temptations. And in some sense, these are very reminiscent of the three temptations that Jesus went through. Notice here, the lust of the flesh. I believe that that is a summary of the next two sins. The lust of the flesh, what is the flesh? It's the moral opposition to God. And so that's all-encompassing. Now, why are the next two filling out the first one? The lust of the flesh is filled out by the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Here's why I think it is. Notice the lust of the eyes. That would be lusting after things which are sinful to God, which God declares to be sinful, whether we're lusting after an extramarital affair or we're coveting after someone's possessions or we're murdering or we're stealing or whatever it is. These are things that Jesus, under the new covenant, has specifically said, thou shall not do, the lust of the eyes. The second category, the boastful pride of life, probably has to do with things that are not inherently sinful in and of themselves, like owning a home. Is it sinful to own a home? No. But if you boast in it and live only for that, rather than living for God and giving thanks to God, even that can become sinful. And so the boastful pride of life has to do with those who live as if this is all there is. Yes, they live for their home, they live for their car. It's the saying that the man with the most toys at the end wins. That's the idea. Inherently, the toys aren't sinful themselves, but it's living exclusively for them at the expense of a relationship with God 
in which they are. And so notice all of this is what? It's living for the world, which is passing away. And so Jesus in the garden didn't live for those desires. He lived instead by Scripture. And so you and I are called to do the same. If we live by God's word, notice the one who does the will of God, what? We, we live forever. Now, I want to show you a very succinct way of showing you this entire passage. James says very much the same thing. In James 4, 7, he says, Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, the term submit there is interesting. It just means to bow the knee or to, to obey, you could render it. Submit here is a term that simply means to obey God. But the term resist there is anthistomy. Anthistomy, that's what that term means, and it means literally to stand, to make a stand with the devil. So the image that I have in my mind is we either bow our knee to the Father and we stand up to Satan, or we stand up to God and we bow our knee to Satan. And those are choices that we have in our daily lives. So how is it that you and I then, again, we live by Scripture rather than for our sinful desires? Well, the first thing is we have to believe the promises of God. Do you know that you will always act on what you truly believe? If you believe something is better for you, you'll do that rather than another thing because you truly believe it. If you believe that wearing your seatbelt is really good for you, you probably wear it in the car. If you don't, you won't wear it. If you think certain food is better for you and you like it better, you'll probably eat that rather than another. If you really believe in the promises of God, you'll act upon that. But there's two things regarding Scripture I want you to consider. That is, you and I, first of all, we have to know the Scriptures if you and I are going to live by them. And second, we have to be disciplined in acquiescing to the Scripture rather than our desire. Let's talk about the first one. We have to know the Scriptures. We can't be ignorant of the Scriptures if you and I are going to live by them. Do you know that's why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.5 that we are to add to our salvation, our saving faith, he said, moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. Why should we add knowledge of God's Word in our sanctification, our transformation, as I like to call it? Because again, you can't act on what you don't know. Think about in Hosea 4, 6, the prophet says, my people perish for their lack of knowledge. Do you know that there was a time in Israel's history shortly after, I believe, Hezekiah? Remember, he was invaded by Sennacherib around 701 BC. And then you had Manasseh, then you had another king, Ammon. They weren't good kings. And somewhere along those wicked kings, do you know, they lost the law. I was reading 2 Chronicles 34 the other day. Do you know Josiah became king when he was eight years old? And at some point as he grows up, he sends men into the treasury of the temple and somebody ends up digging out. Well, here, let me take a bigger piece of paper. They say, hey, what's this? It's, it's the law. They were without the law. No wonder they were going to perish. They knew nothing about it. They didn't even have it. And that's why Josiah's reforms were so wonderful. Brothers and sisters, you and I can't be that way. If we're ignorant of the scriptures, you and I, of course, will live by desire rather than what God has said. The second thing is you and I have to be disciplined. Remember, the apostle Paul himself said that he disciplined himself so that after he preached to others, he himself would not be disqualified of the prize. What prize? The eschatological prize. 
So the more you and I discipline ourselves, and again, it's only by God's grace. This isn't pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is by the power of the Spirit. The more you say no to your desires and yes to the Scriptures, the easier it becomes. So let me give you an example of living for Scripture rather than desire. Let's just take one passage, and I'll show you how it plays out. 1 Corinthians 7.39. 1 Corinthians 7.39, there the Apostle Paul talks about a woman who after her husband dies is free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Isn't it interesting in that one passage, we see that marriage is until death do we part. And by the way, we're going to learn that same thing in Matthew chapter 19. How many times is it in our culture today and years gone by that people who will say, you know, I am unhappy in my marriage but I'm not going to live until death do us part. I'm going to get a divorce now. I'm unhappy in my marriage, and my happiness is more important than living by the word of God. Isn't that like Jesus saying, you know what, I'm a little hungry now. Forget this suffering in the the wilderness. I'm not doing that anymore. What I want to say to everyone today is that there's something more important than our happiness. And what that is, is it's honoring God and our commitments in obeying the scripture. Do you know that same passage says that, yes, she's free to remarry if her husband has died till death do you part, but she's only to be married in the Lord. Do you know that believers are to be married to other believers? So says the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 7.39. And I want to say to those of you who may be young out there, perhaps you're a believer and perhaps you find a candidate as a spouse. But that spouse is an unbeliever. She doesn't like or love the scriptures. But you have feelings for her. And you say, you know what? I want to live for my feelings rather than the scripture. I want to challenge you today to do the opposite. Live for the scripture rather than your desire. What is it in your life today that truth be told as you confronted with you, it's just between you and God. What is it that you are living for today that's, truth be told, it's your desire, but it's not the scripture? Today is the day to turn from that. To say, I want to live by the scripture, not by my desire. And again, all this happens by God's grace for those who believe the promises. This is something I think we can learn from Jesus in the wilderness. Okay, let's go on to our final point, and that is the main point. And that is Jesus is our new representative. And because he is, you and I can live vicariously, eternally through him. So I want to give you the gospel here in kind of long form. I'm going to talk about, first of all, the bad news and then the good news. The bad news that you and I have to be aware of to see the significance of Jesus' suffering in the wilderness is that all of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled against God. And we don't have to wonder if we've done it. The Bible declares we have. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have sinned in the past, and we continuously fall short of his glory in thought, word, and deed. That's every one of us. That's why Jesus had to go and do what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so that's the good news. The good news is that Christ did for us what we cannot do for ourselves so that vicariously... Jesus can be the perfection that we don't have that can be credited to our account. And vicariously, Jesus can pay the sin debt that we can't. He can remove it. 
Now, where do we see this idea that God works vicariously? That is through a substitute who does for other people what they can't do for themselves. Well, we see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Notice here in Romans 5, 19, Paul says, for as through the one man's disobedience, let's stop there. Who would be that one man's disobedience? Who's that one man? Well, that's Adam, isn't it? He was in the garden of perfection, as we talked about today. Notice through his one act of disobedience, the many were what? We were made sinners. We were made sinners. What this means is that you are not just a sinner because you sin. That's true. But you sin because you were born a sinner. When Adam sinned, his sin nature, his sinful status was credited vicariously to us. And you might say, well, hey, I don't like that. It doesn't seem fair to me that God works vicariously. Well, it's good that God does work vicariously because you and I act upon our own sin nature and we sin in deed, in thought, and in word ourselves. And so if God did not work vicariously, the second part of this verse could not be true. Notice the good news. It says, even so, through the obedience of the one, who is that? Well, that's Jesus. And we saw his obedience even in the wilderness. He says, the many will be what? Made righteous. Yes, God works vicariously in the person and work of Christ. Remember some years ago, R.C. Sproul told the story of a man he was witnessing to, talking about the vicarious atonement of Christ. And this man rejected any nature or any notion that God would work vicariously. He says, no one works vicariously anymore. That's outdated. And then he talked about how these lunatics, and by the way, I'm one of them, I love football. But on Sundays, how many times do you see these people who reject the vicarious atonement? They'll be dressed up, and I'm going to pick on the Packer fans. It'll be 20 degrees at Lambeau. Their beer belly's sticking out. They've had five brats. It's, you know, three degrees outside. They're yelling and screaming like lunatics. Why? Because they're living vicariously through this football team, a football team of guys that they don't know one of them personally. And yet they'll say, well, what do you believe in a vicarious atonement? Why do you believe that God works vicariously? Well, thanks be to God, he does. Brothers and sisters, God works vicariously through Christ. That's why he had to go and be obedient in the wilderness. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews 3, verse 6. Hebrews 3, verse 6. I know we're short on time, but I want you to see in Hebrews 3, verse 6, that Jesus is depicted as the faithful son that Israel wasn't. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this, that Israel failed in the wilderness, but Jesus was the faithful son. In fact, as you turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, there's a contrast between Moses, who was regarded as a servant over his house, but Jesus was a son, a faithful son over his house. Hebrews 3, verse 6, we'll start there and we'll read to verse 9. Notice it says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Stop there. We saw his faithfulness today in the wilderness. We saw it and that was on our behalf. So vicariously, he could do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Notice it goes on to say whose house we are if we hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 7, it says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, this is Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts 
that is, we should believe, as when they, that's Israel, provoked me as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing and saw my works for 40 years. Stop there. Notice Israel tested God in the wilderness, but Jesus is the faithful son. Why is it so important that Jesus is the faithful son? Notice here in Hebrews 4.15, it talks about he was tempted as we were. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was, has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. That's what we saw today in the wilderness. God vicariously will use Jesus who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is the core of the gospel, the great transaction, that because Jesus is sinless, he vicariously can live a perfect life so that when we trust in Jesus, his perfection can be given to us, a perfection we don't have. But because Jesus was sinless as well, he could also vicariously die on a cross and remove our sin debt. If I went to the cross to die for someone, it wouldn't do you a lick of good. Why? Because I deserve to be punished for my own sin. And, and the same with you. But because Jesus was faithful, vicariously, he could take upon himself the full measure of God's wrath, and he could pay it off. In that great transaction, we get rid of something we can't have, our sin debt, that Jesus vicariously removed on the cross, and we get something we must have, a righteousness that Jesus Christ vicariously lived out for us. Jesus vicariously lived for you. Jesus vicariously died for you. And it all began by his faithfulness as the faithful son in the wilderness. Today is the day, if you have not trusted upon Jesus, today is the day. Trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, vicariously have his perfection and have his atonement for the forgiveness of sins, all because he is indeed the faithful son. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for Jesus, your son, that he would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that he would be obedient in the garden and in the wilderness and on the cross and in his entire ministry, that he would always take the route of suffering rather than the shortcut, so that we could be justified, so that we can have his righteousness clothed upon us. We're forever grateful. We do pray, Heavenly Father, you'd also help us in our daily challenges and trials and testings, that we would be those who acquiesce to Scripture and bow our knee to you, and rather than bowing and giving our knee to our own sinful desires. We pray by your Spirit you'd help us to not just be hearers of the Word, but doers as well. We pray that you do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.